Well, I told my wife this morning, I said, you know, pray for the service. It's bigger than Easter. And uh, let me explain that to you. I mean, on Easter, everybody comes, you know, on Easter, everybody comes. Christmas Eve, everybody comes. And that's great. I'm glad for that. I'm really thrilled. Um, but today, what we're talking about is us going to the world. And that's far more biblical and a whole lot more effective. Uh, this morning, we're going to wrap up this serve series. You've heard that already. And uh, it's a series that, I guess, in a general sense, has really been about our purpose, our purpose to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. And it's a series also that's talked a bit about that growth process. We grow at Rio by gathering. Matt told you that. By gathering, we mean this right here, Sunday mornings. God honors that. You grow in your relationship with him when that's a regular part of the rhythm of your life. We grow by plugging into community groups, and, you know, you need to do that. Grow. But we grow also in our relationship with Christ by serving, and that's what we've been focusing on the last five weeks. We grow when we wake up to the fact that Jesus Christ has called us to go out into all the world, my world, our world, the world, okay? But he calls us to go out into the world, not as those who seek to fashion the world around themselves and to have the world serve them, but instead he calls us to go out into all the world and to serve the world, to go out into the world in the same fashion in which he came into this world. The great king of the universe left the throne of heaven, guys, and he came into humanity. He condescended to become a man, first of all, but secondly, he condescended to become a peasant Galilean Jew slave of the Roman Empire. The lowliest of men, And yet he was the greatest of men. And he came into the world and he said, look, here's the thing. I did not come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life away as a ransom for many. And so that's where we started. We said many, okay, like many what? Many people like that crooked banner. Many people like that messy banner. It's intentionally crooked. It's been bugging me for five weeks. (laughs) But the honest truth is I'm crooked and messy. And so are every one of you. We looked that first week at the great love that God has for people like us, okay, when we're honest, when we're unmasked. And we walked away with that understanding, all right, people matter to God and they need to matter to us. And we came back thinking about that going, well, that's cool. That makes a nice little three by five card. I can put that on my mirror. I can laminate that and stick that in my wallet. You know, I can put that on my purse. I can teach that to my kids. But so what? I mean, Great. People matter to God. They need to matter to us also. But how do they know that they're going to matter? And we said, well, that's week two. That's mercy. Mercy is the love language of God. It's the love language that God spoke in person, in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. Everywhere that he went, he met physical needs. He healed people. He fed people. He raised people from the dead. I'm sure that was surprising. Everywhere he went, they brought the deranged to him. They brought the possessed to him. He met mental, emotional needs. He left these guys in like a state that was so radically different that the people knew them. They said, you know, they're like, is that the same guy? And he also met the single most important need that every human being that has ever lived has. And that is the need to know that no matter how messy we are, how crooked we are, how big of a mess we have made of our lives that everything between us and our Creator is okay. And how did He do that? By taking upon Himself all of our mess and washing it away with His own life. 
with his own blood. People matter to God. They need to matter to us. They know when we speak the love language of God, and he wants to speak that love language of mercy through me and through you, through each one of us as individuals, but also through us collectively, through this thing that we call the church, and that, by the way, was week three. We said, what's the church, you know? You remember the answer? I mean, the church is a group of of called-out people. We're not a business, like the guy in the video said. We're not a piece of property. We're not a building. We're not a club. Not something that you join and, oh, yeah, I'm a member of a church, you know, We're a group of called out people. We are a group of people who have been called out of darkness and into light, out of death and into life, out of slavery to sin, to walk in freedom. We are a group of people who have been rescued as if from a burning building from the very real consequences and judgment that our very real sin deserves by Jesus who bore those consequences. That's who we are. But called out to do what? To be a blessing. To be the body of Christ. What do you do through your body? Everything that you do. He purposes to use us, his body, to be the instrument of, through which he brings his mercy and he brings his message of forgiveness to the world. Okay? And in doing so, we're the light of the world. Well, that brought us to net last week. What's the world? Well, we learned that every one of us has a world. It's my world. It's your world, right? We collectively have a world. It's this city. This county. And then there's the world beyond our borders. And see, all of that brings us to today. The today that is, you know, quite frankly, bigger than Easter really is. And it's the gospel in you. It's the so what week, you know? Great, we've had all this great music, and we've seen video, and we've endured the sermons. So what? What does this mean for me? What does it mean for you? Or let me put it in different language. What is your thing? What is it? What is the thing that God has all your life, whether you realized it or not, been pouring into your life to mold and to shape and to prepare you in this moment, in this next run, in this next season of your life to do for the building of his kingdom? Because the bottom line of this whole series, and we've failed if we do not accomplish this, and only God can do this, by the way, is for every one of us to find our thing and then to do our thing. That's it. It's find your thing and it's do your thing. And to that end, I want to look at a story um, in Matthew chapter 25, and it's a story that Jesus is telling to his disciples then in the first century in his day. And it's a story, by the way, and I'm going to give you all the you know, characters, and I'm going to explain it all up front. I mean, I think you could figure it out on your own anyway, but I don't want there to be any ambiguity at all. It's a story about Christ. And it's a story about his kingdom. And it's a story about those disciples that he's talking to in that moment. But it's also, and this is really important, it's also a story about me. It's a story about you. And it is a story that tells us just how serious Jesus is about every one of us finding our thing and then doing it. Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, for it, he's talking about his kingdom. He says, for my kingdom will be like a man. By the way, that's Jesus in this story. Don't miss this. Going on a journey, which parenthetically is exactly what Jesus did. It's, I mean, he's on the journey now. 
In other words, Jesus Christ entered into humanity, came as a servant, he lived the perfect life that we have, and he died the sinner's death in our place that we might through faith in him be forgiven and made whole. He was buried, raised from the dead. He ministered 40 days as a risen Savior. You're like, that sounds crazy. Well, think about this for a minute. His disciples then went all over the place preaching a risen Savior and paying for it with their life. Now, that would be crazy if they hadn't actually seen a risen Savior. But then at the end of that, he called all his guys up to the mountaintop. And you know the drill. You know the verse. And he says, go into all the world and make disciples. He gave them their and our mission. We say it differently. We say, go lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. And then what did he do? He ascended into heaven. He went on a journey from which he has promised to return. So Jesus is talking to us this morning, and he says, my kingdom will be like a man, that's me, he's saying, who went on a journey, that's what he's done. But before he goes, look what he does. He called his servants. That's them on that mountaintop. But that's us today. It's me and you. He called his servants and entrusted to them his property, his talents. And I want to put that in quotes. I want to be real careful with what that is, okay? He entrusted to them his property, and to one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one. And, you know, one of the problems with looking at this story from 2,000 years distance is the fact that, you know, we automatically assume that the guy who only got one talent really didn't get a whole lot. Not true. A talent in the days of Jesus was anywhere between 60 and 90 pounds of a precious metal. So just, you know, think in terms of gold. It's huge. It was said to be, in a general sense, about 20 years worth of wages for an average day laborer. So, you know, to one he gave five talents, that's 100 years of wages. To one he gave two talents, that's 40 years of wages. To one he gave one talent, that's 20 years of, of wages. And here's the point. We've got a man, he's, he's Jesus. He's going on a journey, it's what Jesus has done. He's called his servants together and he's given something precious to every single one of us. They are his talents, and as we're going to see, he gives it to us for the building of his kingdom, primarily to be used to lead people into a growing relationship with him. So anyway, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability, which is an interesting phrase. One of the things I learned this week, and I had no idea about this, is we get our English word um, talent from this parable, and we even get the definition, which is ability, because he gave to one five, to one two, to the other one, each according to his ability. And so we speak today about talents in terms of ability. We say, you know, so-and-so is a very talented guy or very talented woman. You know, what we mean by that is that they have some great ability or maybe they have many great abilities because there are five talented show-offs, okay? That's a possibility. But we think of it in terms of ability, and that's fine. I want you to understand that whatever ability that you have today is the gift of God, Period. It is from him. And it is to be used. So see that as a talent in this story. Just don't limit the definition of talent simply to abilities because the talents that you have are so much more than just your abilities. Your talents include your passions. Think about this for a minute. One of my favorite verses, Psalm 37, verse 4. David, the psalmist, is writing, and what does he say? He says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, what does that mean? 
Does that mean, you know, delight yourself in God, make him the passionate pursuit of your life, and then he'll give you anything you want? I mean, that would be cool. So you're standing out in the front yard, delighting yourself in God, you know, and you're thinking, I'd like a Porsche, and ooh! Miraculously, some guy gets out of his Porsche. You know, I don't know why, but I just feel compelled to give this to you. Would you like it? You're like, yes, it matches the house somebody gave me yesterday when I was delighting myself in God. It just goes with the boat, and it's not that. It really isn't. It is to center your affections on God. It is to pursue God. It is to make Him the passionate and joyous pursuit of your life. Though imperfectly as a sinful person, but He's your passion. He's your pursuit. And through that relationship with Him, He will implant into your heart His desires, His passions, and they then become yours. Which means what? They're a gift from God. They are a talent. What are your passions? Passions are powerful. I think when you're thinking about talents, you need to think also in terms of your experiences. You know, one of the things that we don't realize, but, you know, being good Presbyterians, quite frankly, we ought, is that our God is a sovereign God, that all of our days are written in his book before even one of them comes to pass. We know this. He ordains for us every event, every word of our mouth. He knows it before we speak it. Everything that occurs, all of our experiences, talents from him. As I look around this room and I think of the experience and I think of the abilities and I think of the passions of the people in this room, my goodness, the potential. Hang on to that. You know, your talents include your failures. Maybe you weren't expecting that one. But that's true too. I mean, your mistakes, your blunders, the ways that you've made a major mess of your life and have proved yourself to be kind of a crooked, messy banner. All of the shameful things you've ever done, all of it, all of it, talents. Talents. That God can use to build his kingdom, that God can use to serve to deliver his message of mercy and of Jesus to other people. I got a call from a guy like two weeks ago, sort of in the middle of this series, and, uh, and he and his wife have um, struggled with an addiction to alcohol. And he said, you know, by God's grace, we've come a long way, and I know that to be the case. Now, they understand it to be fragile. It's a, it's a lifelong battle, no, no doubt, but the Lord has brought them so far. He said, Tom, I've been listening to your messages and we were thinking that maybe there are other people we can help. You know, he said, oh, we've made a lot of mistakes, you know, but we've learned a lot of lessons. So if you know anybody in that same boat, give them my phone number. Give them my wife's phone number because we can speak to both issues, the addict and the one married to the addict. That's a talent. It's hard to find one a whole lot more valuable, perhaps, than that. Your talent includes all of the shameful things that you've ever done, but let me go one further. It includes all the shameful things that have ever been done to you. And that one takes a minute to absorb. But think about that with me for a second. Who better to minister to the sexually abused than those who have themselves been sexually abused and and through the mercy and message of Jesus Christ, through relationship with him, have come through the other side, have been made whole, have found healing. Who better? 
Who better to come into the life of somebody who has been, you know, just betrayed and abused and rejected and divorced and whatever on just like so many different levels? Who better to come into the life of that person in that crisis, in that moment, than somebody who's been through exactly that same thing in spades? But who through relationship with Christ has realized their true value, have been able to kind of walk through and begin to forgive. Who better? Who better to pull somebody out of a ditch than somebody who's been in the ditch is kind of my point. Your failures, but also the failures of others that they have inflicted upon you, all of them talents. Your talents include your personality, and there are a lot of personalities in this room. Really? It's great. Your talents include your reputation. And some of us need to risk our reputation and reveal maybe that we've been in the ditch. That's a talent to invest, to risk, to give. Your talent includes your health. Your talent includes your wealth. Let me speak to that bluntly and real quick. You ready? One of the single greatest limiting factors of the church with a big C and of this church in extending the mercy of God to a world that needs to hear the love language of mercy and of taking the gospel to the world that needs to hear the gospel is the patent rampant disobedience of God's people to worship him with their money. Money, guys, is a talent. And let me tell you why it's so disabling. It's not because we're financially strapped. It is because this world needs to see God's people worship a different God than it does. It's a talent, and every one of us has it. All of us. Your very life is a talent. It is a gift from God. So don't think of talents just in terms of abilities. Broaden your imagination and try to take in what Christ is saying. For he comes to us this morning and he says, guys, my kingdom, let me tell you what it's like. It's like a man, that's me, by the way, who goes on a journey, that's what he's done, who calls his servants, that's you and I, and entrusts to them his talents, his property. And to one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability, but each talent precious. Each one. But now look what happens. What do the servants do? It says he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. He invested the talents. He, and this is important, risked them. It's what happens when you invest, isn't it? We've kind of been brought into touch with that of late. He took the talents that belonged to the master and he put them at risk. But it paid off. It says he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. That's awesome. And so also he who had the two talents, he invested them as well. He risked them, and guess what happened? Wow, I mean, they doubled. He made two talents more, but, and you know this guy, because you know this story. He who had received the one talent failed to invest it, failed to risk it, failed to use it for the purpose, as we're going to see, for which it had been given to him, but instead went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And here's the problem also of us reading this story is that so many of us know this story that we don't know really how his disciples would have heard it culturally. Culturally, they would have heard the story and they would have been questioning the wisdom of the guys who risked the wealth of the master. Like, what if they lost? 
what the one talent guy does was the common practice. And it's important for you to understand that because there's a really shocking ending to this and you kind of miss the whole shock if you don't realize that what the one talent guy does, that's what they probably would have done. See, it was not uncommon when somebody came to you and said, look, I'm going on a long trip and I don't want to take all of this with me. You know, I trust you and so I'm going to give you all of these talents, all of this wealth, if you will, Will you watch over it for me when I'm gone? Okay, it was uncommon to take it and to invest it and try to increase it while the guy was gone. To put it at risk, it was common to go and find some super secret hiding place, you know, dig it in the ground, put the talent in the ground, bury it over, create your treasure map, and leave it there. The one talent guy is the only guy who at all times could say, when the master returns, I can give him back everything he's given to me. Five-talent guy could have lost. Two-talent guy could have lost, at least in theory. Until you realize what this story is all about. And you come to realize that win or die, sink or swim, win or lose, in this life, God always blesses the risking prudently of the talents that he gives us for the building of his kingdom. But when you're just playing through this story, you know, and you're one of the disciples of Christ, you are stunned at the end when you realize that the guy who is visited in judgment, that's the guy who stuck it in the ground. He did the safest thing. See, I think one of the lessons of this story and one of the lessons of the Bible in general is that God blesses the risk, prudent risk, wise risk, of his talents that he's given to us by his people for the building of his kingdom. You see all these different examples. You know, you think of Joab, the great general of King David, and he's out on the battlefield with his armies. Remember this story? He's surrounded. He's, like, going to lose. He's outnumbered. He's got the Syrians on the one side, the Ammonites on the other side. I mean, this is the kind of story guys love, okay? And here's the deal. He can either flee and live or fight and maybe not live. But he's fighting for the people of God, for the cities of God, for the kingdoms of God. And he chooses to risk. Calls his guys together. And he says in 2 Samuel 10, Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our gods. And then here's how you know it's a risk. It's contingent language. He says, May the Lord do what seems good to him. He took the talent of his very life and risked it. And God blessed it. And in that story, rescued him and his people through him. We see it in the story of Esther. Great story. You know, this beautiful young Jewish woman who wins the beauty pageant. You remember that? And in winning the beauty pageant, she becomes the queen to the king of Persia, the king of the then known world, who doesn't know that she's a Jew and who himself is kind of manipulated into declaring this edict that all the Jews in his kingdom, the then known world, be destroyed. That's an alarming moment. And so then her stepfather, Mordecai, comes to her and says, listen, God has made you the queen. I don't know if you thought about that, but that's a talent. And it, wow, it's precious. You need to go to the king. She says, I can't go to the king. If you just show up unannounced, if he doesn't first call for you, it's a capital offense. You're subject to death. I mean, he can pardon, but he might also just say, gone, you know, look at what happened to the other queen. 
Mordecai says, do it. It says, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. The Bible is replete with stories of men and of women who have risked the talent of their very lives. And in this story also, God blesses it and rescues all the Jews and her. We see it with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know the story. You went to Sunday school. It's phenomenal. It involves a fiery furnace, television. Turn the TV off. This is cooler stuff. Seriously. Great King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, king of the then-known world in his day, builds this big golden image and says, everybody at the sound of the this and the that and the thing, you know, when the music goes off... Bow to the altar, bow to the image. And everybody does, but these three guys. And he knows these guys, so he calls them in and says, guys, we're heating up the furnace, you know? But I like you, so I'm going to give you another shot. Are you going to do it or not? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. So they're obviously freaked out, right? It's like they're flipping. Ah, not a big deal. If this be so, if you throw us into the fiery furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, if we burn up. And they don't know whether they will or not. That's the word if. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. They risk their lives. And again, in this story, God not only blesses the risking of that talent, as the true and the living God is then published through this kingdom, but he rescues them. What do you risk for the kingdom of God, guys? What do I risk? Because the call to the Christian is to risk it all. But God doesn't always deliver either, does he? That's kind of the scary piece. I mean, you think, for example, about the Apostle Paul. Talk about a five-talented guy. Wow. He's like a 25-talented guy, you know? And he risks all of his talents, all of them, and he gives us in 2 Corinthians 11 just kind of a short synopsis, just a little brief sketch of some of the things that he went through. Not stuff that I'd be looking to sign up for. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. You see, they had this whole scourging thing down to a science. They knew if they lashed you 40 times, you usually died. So they went with 39. Five times. 39. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys... In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. He leaves nothing out. Danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, 
In cold and exposure and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. And in the end, according to tradition, he got his head chopped off. Isn't that glorious? You know, and then you see that and you think, well, okay, he risked his talents and he lost. Did he? He risked his talents and God didn't bless it because he didn't save him. Is that the way it works? God always blesses the risking of the talents that he gives to us, whether we see it or not. And he didn't live to see the fact that 2,000 years later, all over the world today, there are Gentiles, like most of us, gathering to worship and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. All over the world, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. Did he win or did he lose? God is looking for people who will take a risk with the talents that he himself has given to us for the building of his kingdom. He wants us to find our thing and to do it. And to wake us up to that, he tells us this story. And so far, it's been kind of friendly. You know, we're like, cool, and that's Jesus, and that's us, and that's his kingdom, and I get it. But it's going to get a little alarming in a minute. He says to us, he says, for my kingdom will be like a man, that's me going on a journey, that's what I've done, who calls his servants, that's you, he would say, and entrusted to them his property, his talents for the building of his kingdom. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability, and then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and risked them all, traded with them, and he made five talents more. Why? Because God always blesses that. So also he who had the two risked it all and made two talents more. The Lord blessed his risk as well. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And then it says, now after a long time, and this is one of the coolest phrases, by the way, in the whole story. After a long time, the master of those servants came. He returns. He's returning. And he settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents. Now I want you to imagine like how excited this guy is. I mean, think about that because that ought to motivate you. This guy is really jacked up about this right now. Why? Because he's doubled the master's money or talents. So he just can't wait. The guy with the two tal- or five talents came. Bringing five talents more and saying, Master, you deliver to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. And his master said to him, and this is so important, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That should be the benediction of our lives. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, and you want to stop the master and go, no, really, I mean, you gave this guy a lot. It's like a hundred years worth of wages. No, it's nothing. It's pittance compared to the reward, you see. The master is working on a completely different economy. He says, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. See, he's pretty jazzed too. Here, I've made two talents more. It's like, yes, yes. What's he going to say to me? Same thing, which is really kind of neat. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And you want to say, but he only made two extra talents. The other guy made five extra talents, but he gets the same thing. Yeah, God's not grading the results. He's grading faithfulness according to ability. He gave talents each according to his ability. What are you doing with what he's given is kind of the idea. Well, you know the story. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, which is where he misjudged the character, I think, of his master, who, first of all, wants you to risk what he gives you prudently, but to invest it in his kingdom, and he blesses those risks. He delights to reward, to say, well done. Enter into the joy of your master. This guy doesn't get that. He says, so I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. I did what's customary. Here, you have what is yours, and I give it to you in full. But his master answered him, and this is some of the strongest language Jesus uses to describe anyone anywhere, and truthfully, it's kind of stunning. He says, you wicked and slothful servant, your own mouth condemns you. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming... I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who is not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What a glorious way to end a whole serp series. Isn't that nice? That's kind of where you thought it was going to end, isn't it? What is that? I honestly thought this week, you know, can I end this story at you wicked and slothful servant? Because that kind of, you know, I mean, but that's not where Jesus ended it, is he? Is it? Jesus is walking back in some sense into the tradition of the prophets in the Old Testament, and he is using apocalyptic language. An apocalyptic language like this has a purpose. And do you know what the purpose is? It is to shock the snot out of you. (laughs) It is to wake the dead if that is what is necessary. And it may be. And in this case, it is to awaken all of us here today who are on notice that we, A, have talents and we be are called to risk and to invest them in the kingdom of God for our king is returning with an eternal reward. It's only by faith that you can do this. Otherwise, it's nonsense. He is trying to awaken in each one of us the opportunity that we have, A, to find our thing, and to do our thing, to hear in the end 
the benediction of our Lord. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. Now, I will give you charge over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's why he says it that strongly. Jesus wants us to find our thing, guys. And then for his glory, for the building of his kingdom, to do it. God bless you guys.